to brag on someone else. Um, when Paul referenced in his sermon a few weeks ago, which, which uh, he was very generous with me about, but he, he referenced in that sermon that it is the Holy Spirit that teaches us, that causes us to learn, that reveals and illuminates Scripture, that he, he may use our gifts as teachers to accomplish this, as parents and grandparents to accomplish this. It's still our job to be involved. How will people know unless they hear? How will they hear unless somebody tells them? But it is the Spirit that illuminates his word. Again, that doesn't remove the responsibility for us to prepare and be ready and be trained and whatever, but it's also the constant comfort of knowing, even in a week when there's Man, on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, I can't even string two thoughts together to begin even working on a sermon, knowing the Holy Spirit is still going to work through His Word as we talk about it this morning. Um, it's just, it, it, is the, it is the foundational comfort for everything we do when we're doing an event or taking care of kids or whatever. It is our responsibility to do everything we can do, absolutely, because we get the freedom to do it, and knowing the Holy Spirit is the one who really accomplishes the work. The farmer can work, but only the Holy Spirit can make things grow. And so um, it is a great thing. Thank you again for everybody who's been involved with all of this kind of stuff. Um, so as Jesus, one of the things that's really cool about this John 15 passage is that Jesus, when he's walking and talking with his disciples, and I get to experience this when I'm there on the ground in Israel, when he's walking and talking with his disciples, that you're just, you're just moving through teaching, and Jesus is doing that. And here you have Jesus. He's been up in the upper room with his disciples, and they've had their last supper meal and uh, the, the Passover meal. They finished Passover. It tells us in the 14, they leave. Um, and he says, he says, let's go from this place. They get up to leave. Well, at some point between where they are, and no one knows exactly where they were when they had the last supper, and they go across the Kidron Valley, and they go up into what's called the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. The Gethsemane is just an olive press. It's a place where olives are pressed. And so as he goes down through this valley and he goes up there, somewhere during that walk, I think it is very clear that Jesus comes across grapevines, that he comes across. And by the way, that's not strange. There are grapevines all over the place. Um, they grow naturally there as well as they are planted there. And so Jesus is walking along. This is from my backyard. Muscadines grow wild in my backyard. And so um, just sitting and, and contemplating the idea of, and like I could teach so many different aspects, although they're not the ones Jesus taught, so I'm not going to, but to teach so many different aspects on being a vine or a branch and how those relate to one another and how confusing, by the way, that can be, where one begins and the other one ends and what produces and what is a vine, what is a branch this year, is a vine next year and, and, and all the different things that play into that. But it would just, it struck me as really um, valuable to think as Jesus takes stopping and saying, listen, listen, guys. Your, your branches, I'm the vine. So here, here's what's important to understand about because we, we as evangelicals want to turn all of Jesus' parables and all of Jesus' analogies into salvation conversations. And, and the vast majority of his parables and, and, and uh, analogies weren't about salvation. He, he was talking to people who he's, he's had his disciples. This is 11. He doesn't need to give them the gospel presentation. One, they're not getting it yet and aren't going to get it fully until after the resurrection. But two, he's trying to teach them some lessons to prepare them. Um, when we talk about the parable of the soils, um, you know, the four different soil types and different responses to the gospel, we, want to be, we have whole sermon series about which of these people are really Christians and which ones aren't, when that wasn't the point of, the, of his conversation at all. It was, listen, when I share the gospel, this is Jesus speaking, when I spread the good news, when I throw seed, I get all types of responses. You will too. Sometimes people are going to seem to get it and they don't. Sometimes people are going to seem to get it and they do. Sometimes people aren't interested. They're as hard as a rock. 
So it's important for us to understand that and to engage in these analogies and parables. Now, one of the funny things that you've noticed, maybe you've noticed about the book of John is you haven't seen many parables. John is not a book of parables. John doesn't reference the parables of Jesus hardly at all. That's probably because John is writing his gospel last, and he knows the parables have been well covered in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And so these main parables, but what John likes to deal with is Jesus' analogies. Now, one of the hard things for us is that Jesus' analogies are often absurd. In fact, very often the point of his analogy is that it is absurd. And so we then try to teach all types of Western rational thinking about them, and it falls apart because he's intentionally making a point that makes no sense. That's the point, is that it makes no sense. He likes to create absurd analogies. Think about these, like a camel through the eye of a needle. Um, and, and once again, this time, I was very pleased. Our guide in Israel this time stopped at one of the double doors that has often called the eye of the needle doors or whatever. Um, there's actually no historical evidence that those were ever called eyes of needles. Like, none of that's ever, and yet they often teach stuff. And so he started teaching, and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to correct this. And he gets partway through it. He goes, that's what I was teaching when my last pastor who was with me stopped me halfway through and goes, hey, stop doing that. Like, that's outdated. We pretty much know that's not really the truth. And plus, if it wouldn't make any sense. If, that, if the whole point of that passage is uh, a, a camel going through the eye of a needle is so hard they have to get on their knees, then the disciples' response would have been, oh, so you have to get on your knees to get into the kingdom of heaven. But that's not their response. What is the, what is the disciples' response when Jesus says it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? What do they say? Well, then it's impossible, right? Well, it's not impossible to get a camel through that door. It is impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And so that seems to be just the simplest, but it's a clearly an absurd teaching, right? We always, we've tried to give it a non-absurd meaning, but there's not one because it's, it's absurd. How about salt that isn't salty? That's absurd. Salt is salty. If it's not salty, what is it? Not salt, right? It's not... That doesn't make any sense. How about a light, a lamp that is lit and then hidden under a basket? Well, that's ridiculous. No one does that, right? That would be absurd. No one would waste the olive oil to light a lamp and then hide the light. That makes no sense. How about saying things like, let the dead bury their own dead? That doesn't make much sense. How about saying, if your eye offends you, pluck it out? So Jesus intentionally makes absurd references to make the point of absurdity. Notice how this doesn't make sense? Yes, Right. Salt that isn't salty doesn't make sense. You're salt. So you not seeming very salty is ridiculous. That's his point. We now have a parable where Jesus seems to be using the idea of a vine that has branches that don't want to be attached to the vine. Like they want to kind of, I don't know, detach and crawl off on their own is the idea. Well, that's absurd. Branches don't detach from the vine. They don't have that choice. They're attached to the vine. And so he's using this. This is a ridiculous picture that he's using, all of these. This is a message about abiding, living in community with God, now and for eternity. Hang tight, hold fast, cling to, be constant, like a branch and a vine. He is always there. We deny that there is, listen, as, as Christians, we deny that there is a God in a tent somewhere, that there's a God in a big stone building somewhere. That's not part of who he is. That was never part of his great joy. 
It's not, it, wasn't his, it wasn't his great heart and passion to dwell in tents or buildings made with human hands. He did in order for us to be able to recognize and engage with and abide with him in a way that made sense to us. But he never needed it. That wasn't something he needed. So when we were there, it was, it was sad to hear as we're up on the Temple Mount and you hear the guide saying like, you know, the Muslims are up here because praying up here is worth 500 prayers. Um, to pray up here is worth 500 prayers. To pray at home is worth one prayer. And we're like, yeah, see, that just breaks my heart. The thought that I need to somehow traverse locations in order for me to finally find 500 times of God than I can find at home. This is stuff that, that Jesus is clearly fighting against is that way of thinking. Remember, there's a temple that they are walking near as he says this. And Jesus is saying, not that is the branch, or that is the vine and you are the branches. The temple is the vine and you are the branches. That's not what Jesus says. He is the vine. And we, he, God is the vine. Jesus is the vine and, and we're the branches. That's, there's, this is someplace more than he is in other places. A lifetime that is saturated, intimate, interacting, growing, intertwined with God that it's hard to tell apart. They had been with Jesus. And that becomes easily recognizable. In fact, the first time Peter gets called out for having been with Jesus, the first three times, he denies it. But then later in the book of Acts, we find a situation where Peter is talking and, and people say, this guy has been with Jesus. And at that point, it's something that Peter embraces. It's hard for us. It's tough for us when we, for us to be able to, it's, it's going to become more difficult for us. The next series I think I'm going to teach after we're done with John is going to be through Daniel. And, and the main reason I want to touch on Daniel isn't for the prophetic aspect of it, but the idea of what it's like to live in a culture that's no longer your friend. And, and we're, we're getting there very much so as Christians in the United States where, where it's, it, we're just going to teach through it and see what the Bible has to teach us about living like that. But, but to go, how do, you, how do you live in a situation where if people recognize that you claim to be with Jesus, it's going to cost you something. That, that that's, leads to less respect, not more respect. Less taken seriously, not more taken seriously. Um, and so that's one of the things that, that they're learning to be a part of. And one of the commentaries, Benson commentary, says, Such unfruitful branches the vine dresser cuts off in righteous judgment and entirely separates them from one, depriving them of the advantages of fruitfulness. So this idea of, of, of the vines being cut off. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let me read through what we started with last week and I'm gonna catch us up till now. Uh, starting in verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now Bob mentioned, Dr. Bob mentioned last week that, that Bruce Wilkinson's book, um, The Secrets of the Vine, um, argues here that the phrase taken away should be more understood to be lifted up. Um, I, I, think, I think that it's our partial bent as evangelicals, as I said, to try to turn everything into a salvation conversation. 
um, and to turn it into something that clearly is about, okay, these, these are saved and these are not saved. These know Jesus, these don't know Jesus. When that delineation is not meant to be neatly taught in an analogy, I think that Jesus gives. I think a better understanding of this idea of burned we might get from another passage about burning and a similar message from 1 Corinthians 3.10 uh, through 15. This is one of my favorite passages when I consider what it's like to be a Christian and how we live our life. Um, the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians some of whom are following Christ. They are living an abiding life. This word abide is a word we don't use much anymore. Um, and so we could take that out and use the word live with, cohabitate, like someone who is there 24-7, hip to hip, best friends, whatever language you want to put. But that's the idea. An intimate relationship is what's being described here. So some people are living according to the truth of that and some aren't. All of us who are married um, should easily be able to grasp this concept. You, you can be married, and sometimes you're doing a good job of being married, and sometimes you're doing a bad job of being married. Neither of it changes whether you're married, right? And so here you have the Apostle Paul describing what it's like to live a life with Jesus Christ badly. What are the consequences of that? What does that look like? Here's what he says. According to the grace God has given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become made clear, manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he suffers loss. Though he himself will be saved, but he'll smell like smoke. It says, but if through fire. But, but that's a, yeah, that's, that's the, this is the idea, I think. And I think that's a better way of even understanding part of what Jesus is talking about here. Do you want to be someone who is a part of a kingdom that is a kingdom of significance in your life? It's going to be a kingdom of significance. But is it going to be a kingdom of significance in your life? Do you want to get to hear someday, well done, good and faithful servant? This isn't a fear-based thing. It's not supposed to be. That's not the main message here. There is fear involved, healthy fear involved. But, but that's not the main message that Jesus clearly is teaching. Jesus isn't constantly motivating us through like, eh, watch out, right? The, the, the idea of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, that's true for those who are defined by their sin, but for followers of Christ, we're not defined by our sin anymore. We may still be sinners in our behavior, but we're not defined by that sin. Jesus motivates us with encouragement and love. Come on, let's, let's be a part of something that changes the world. Let's stop focusing on what is negative and focusing on what... This isn't some, some, some by the way, some health and wealth, you know, oh, we're all going to feel good type of thing. That's not true at all. No, no. Pain and suffering and depression and the flu are all things that, that, uh, that strike all of us as Christians, right? That's not, that concept, that's, that's still, those are silly concepts. But to say, not that you are, well, I guess I better share Jesus or I'm going to hear about it. But instead to say, you, you get to share Jesus. I mean, that's a, this is, even if the world is in denial of it, we will find individuals everywhere we go who recognize they are in a dry and thirsty land and there is no water. And they're going to well after well after well and toxifying themselves and, and, and poisoning themselves or just 
finding emptiness. And, and listen, as a therapist, I will tell you, seeing it, seeing it, seeing it, seeing it. All of you are too. You're seeing it in the people around you. The question is, are we like that living stone that is going to pour forth water? Or do we go like, ooh, not, 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 I don't want to take that opportunity. So for us to be too quick to go, let me, I, I mean, I got a well. I know where there's a well. I can introduce you to the well. This, this is part of who, we get to do that. That's not some kind of big, heavy burden. That's the picture being created here. We get to suffer. Listen, worst case scenario is we go to heaven and people are like, have you, have you been like doing s'mores or something? You smell like smoke. So this is a like, that's worst case scenario for us, right? Is they're saved, but as if through fire. Well, what a bummer. I don't, I've never had a house fire. Maybe some of you have. I've always thought that would be bad. I mean, to get done and be like, well, I'm alive. I mean, everything's gone, but at least I'm here. That's, being here is good. That would be great. Losing everything, not so good. And that's the picture that Paul is creating. We have the opportunity to invest in great stuff. Also, is each one of us a single branch? It just says we're branches. How easy is this to create the impression of salvation in it? Instead, let's focus on what Jesus is trying to focus on, and that is living the abiding life. Living the life saturated, engaged, anchored, utterly dependent on the branch, the vine. Dad, come in. The, the, I think of branches as bigger than vines. So the vine, I get that backwards. If you abide in me, my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When you abide, now I, I do believe there's something about the authority of the original disciples woven into this passage. But that being said, I think there's also something to that. When we abide in Christ, we pray prayers that get answered. Is it because he answers our prayers? Yes. Is it because we ask the right prayers? Yes. That is all through scripture, the idea that those, that those who seek the Lord receive the desires of their heart. Now, if you're seeking the Lord and you receive the desires of your heart, what is probably the desires of your heart? The Lord, the one you're seeking, right? And so both of those are true. Those are, that's a great partnership with us and God is that we learn to ask the right things and he loves to give us the right things. Those aren't in contradiction to each other. Of course, of course both of those are true. It always brings me back, because I'm a dad, it always brings me back to the first Peter reference and the Malachi reference to, to when, Jesus, or when, when Peter is, is referencing it, he says, make sure, husbands, that you are considerate of your wife. The, the Greek there means that you think about your wife. That's, and is that not great marriage advice? I mean, men... You don't have to nod or anything like that. But like, like that you're like, oh yeah, wife. Like that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to recall. So many wives, that's the main negative is how inconsiderate. And so Peter, who of course is married, he knows this stuff because um, he has a mother-in-law who he has Jesus heal. Like, I mean, she was sick and dying and Peter has her healed. This was his big chance. And he, he asked Jesus to heal her instead. Like that's... So apparently a good marriage. And so he says, he says, hey, husbands, he has all this, all this beautiful poetry for wives. And then for husbands, it's like, husbands, think, think, right? So as you live with her, live in consideration, consider her, and so that your prayers will not be hindered. Wow, that's awesome language that I get that I think applies to this kind of thing. I mean, Peter was there for this conversation, 
Peter maybe has daughters. I mean, Peter maybe gets this concept of going, hey, this is God going, this is my daughter. How you treat her affects how I treat you. Dads, yes? Yeah. I, uh, um, for Clay uh, Alexander, who's here, we, bought, we, we switched names and get T-shirts for each other at Christmas. They're supposed, and the, the T-shirt I got for Clay said, guns don't kill people. Grandfathers with pretty granddaughters kill people. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so uh, he appreciated that. And that's the... Can you imagine? Can you imagine a husband mistreating Ellie and then coming to me, or Emma and then coming to me and saying, "Hey, pops, can I borrow a hundred bucks?" Be like, "Well, we only have one thing to talk about. That's it. Nothing. We're not talking about anything else but one thing. You ready to talk about that one thing? No. In that case, your prayers are hindered. I'm not interested in talking about anything else. We have one thing to talk about, and that's it." And so, this is that concept. If you're abiding in Christ, if you're loving people well, if if you're following him and worshiping him and, and, and that's coming out of your life, of course the Father is saying, man, you're taking such good care of my people. You're taking such good care of my treasure. What else can I do for you? Well, of course there's something to this. There's a, there's a pragmatics I think makes sense. Eight, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, if I, if I stopped here, if I did this one verse, and maybe I will, it's, it is stunning. Continue in my love, which is like the Father's love for me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Live there. Um, this will come as a surprise to absolutely none of you, but... Ginger was absolutely out of my league. Um, Ginger was working for my mom and uh, as doing some secretary-type work for her, and I came in to move furniture. And um, I'd seen her on campus at SFA a couple of times, and I always noticed her on campus, um, uh, and, but never said anything to her on campus, obviously. And so um, there's whole stories behind that that some of you know. But this was a... Uh, I come in there and I'm working and trying to be cool and, you know, getting to lift heavy things, which is always a nice way to introduce yourself to a girl. And so this is a, as, as we're, I'm trying to talk with her, but she was completely, I mean, completely out of my league. There was no risk involved in flirting with her because, I mean, she wasn't going to be interested, right? And so because I knew she was completely out of my league, it was completely safe to be flirtatious with her and even to say, as I'm getting ready to leave, um, hey, um, ought ought to take you to lunch sometime. Now, that was totally safe, right? The only question was, which creative explanation was I gonna get for why that wasn't gonna happen, right? And what she said was, well, how about tomorrow? That's not what was supposed to happen. Like it was, it was stunned. Like I was, I was truly just, okay. Like I had to go make a whole new plan. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do. I was the dog who had caught the car and had never planned on that happening. Like that was, this is, this is what struck me. We are so easy with saying God loves everybody. God loves me and God loves you. Have you ever thought about that? Have, have you ever considered that, I think that feels so safe to us. Well, of course, I mean, he's God. He loves everybody, right? It's like Lois Lane. Superman loves everybody, Jimmy. 
right? Everybody, it's, it's safe to say that. There's no consequences with that. That doesn't mean anything. Sure, everyone knows God, God loves you, so it feels normal and safe to say it. Even by people who hate God, they say it. Sometimes atheists will throw it in the face of Christians. God loves everybody, right? Like It's, it's such an easy thing to say. For, for many of us, there comes a moment when it quite suddenly, it just isn't something we say and we suddenly see it. God loves me. God does. Not just anybody. God does. Omniscient, omnipotent, never wrong. God, that guy, he loves you and he loves me and he says, just live there. Abide in that. Rest there. This is your home. My love is your home. Abide there. God the Father loves his son. And we get to live in that love. Stop fighting for it. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to make it happen. Stop. Rest in this truth. This is your home. My love. I love you. Isn't it amazing how easy it is for us to just right through that? This for, maybe for the first time in my life, reading through this, those three words at the end of that verse, throw that verse back up. Ab- four words. Abide in my love. As a standalone sentence had not struck me. This is, I, I, I can't believe Jesus said it any other way. As the, he's walking with his men through the city of Jerusalem, towards the Garden of Gethsemane, to be arrested, he stops and teaches them a little bit about this vine. In the way that this branch clings to this vine, abide in my love. That's where you're supposed to be. Is there any place else that branch is supposed to be? No. This is your home. This is who you are. Live there. There is a God He is on the throne. He loves me. I live there. Set up camp. There's plenty to work for. This isn't one of them. Just live here. At the end of the world of tag, in the world of tag, his love is base. In the desert, his love is the oasis. In the dry and thirsty land, this is Angedi. Stop. Live there. Don't keep moving. And of course, Jesus' response to the Father's love is perfect obedience. He wraps obedience and love together as interchangeable concepts in this passage. He loves to do it. Sure enough, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The intertwining of love and obedience is really quite beautiful. We, the rebellious heart in us doesn't like it, but it's, but it's so obviously intertwined. Well, of course you would. Why wouldn't you? 1 John, same author, 1 John, John writes this in 4, 9-11. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice that language of sent. God sent his Son. Jesus' coming was an act of obedience. To the Father. We were looking this week at this one, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Crosses carried with them a special type of shame for the Hebrew people. To die on earth, to be on earth is fine. To be in heaven is fine. To be somewhere in between is a curse. It's shameful. He'd have brought shame upon his whole family dying that way. It would have been an awful experience. How did Jesus engage with that shame? Joyfully. That's his love for us. I, I, I struck me the growth cycle versus the death cycle, uh, the death spiral struck me in this. Relationships are intertwined like this. There's not a, a neat and clean cause and effect relationship. Now, John Tip makes it clear that the cause and effect is he first loved us. But like in a family, we've talked about that. Well, what is it? Is it love or is it obedience? Is it love or is it obedience? Well, it's, it's intertwined like this. And when you see this lived out with two um, branches growing on the vine, like in marriage or friendship or family or something like that, it's, it's incredible how you could see it. My, my theory is that marriage is a living parable of God's love for his people. That's why it's such a great testimony um, uh, for who God is. So, so what we see here is we use marriage, as I'm going to use marriage here as an example, but but, but this, this idea, this week I ran into a situation in counseling where there was a couple who, they were on the verge of divorce, they have made the turnaround, they were in the death spiral doing like this, and so we started figuring out how to, to reverse that cycle and both serve one another rather than constantly worrying about themselves, to both set aside their own preferences instead of constantly stressing about, about like, well, what about me and my needs and all that junk, and they start working the other way. And this week they had a great example that they came in and were laughing about in that so you imagine this, and the husband who's finally starting to get this, and he says, he said, I got to tell you this story this week, so here's what happened, is just the other day, he said, you told us we have a hard time letting someone else love us. He goes, that has struck me as so real that we're so on the defensive, like, oh, but if, if you love me well, I'll owe you something, and I don't want to owe you anything. And it's this very ugly thing that's created. And he's like, and so since we've been tearing that down and learning to laugh about that and learning to laugh about like, oh no, you can't love me well because then I'll have to, like we can now laugh at it. He goes, so this week what happened is he, his wife said, I'm gonna, uh, I need to do the dishes and I'm gonna take, clean up the, the kitchen and the laundry room and then I'm gonna sit outside and, and just you know, read and write and sip some coffee or something like that. And he said, well, I don't have anything to do right now. Why don't you go right now? And take twice as much time and sit and read, sip some coffee, and I'll do the dishes, and I'll take care of the kitchen, and I'll do the laundry room. And she was like, no, 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 you don't need to do that. I'll do it. So they get into an argument. <laughs> and him going, no, no, let me, let me do this. And her going, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to be doing this. He goes, I kid you not, he says, according to Ephesians, you have to submit to me. <laughs> so I'm now instructing you to go outside and sit and read and write. Now, ladies, that's what he meant by submit. That's the idea, is that you're submitting to someone who's serving you with their very life. How hard is that, right? That, that should be like, okay, fine, you win, right? Like that's a, this is, this is the idea being created by an intimate, powerful relationship where love and obedience are intertwined with one another. This is what God intends, that they should look like, it can look like that, where you're going, how do I, no, no, I'm using my power to serve you. Well, I'm going to use my power to serve you. That happens in any Christian relationship, that can happen. Christian business relationships, Christian friendships, dating relationships, all of that. How do I, how do I follow God by serving you in regards to this? This is the idea that Jesus Christ says he wants to have that kind of relationship with us. How, that's, that's nuts that we would obey him and love him. 
as he serves us and loves us, as, as, as Bob pointed out, um, these things, listen to this, this is the model of the relationship. The model of the relationship that Jesus has with the Father of love and obedience is the model he gives us in John 15 for our relationship with him and our now we're moving into the section starting today and then next week that'll be the relationship with one another. More of the same. The model for our relationship is there. This is the relationship cycle that he intends. Do you think Jesus is impassioned here? You don't think Jesus is eye-rolling here, do you? You don't think he's going like, I guess you just have to obey the Father. No. Jesus is excited to reveal to his disciples this opportunity to live in the loving, obedient relationship that he intends, like a vine and branches. They serve each other. They depend on each other. These things I have spoken to you, verse 11, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, satisfied, complete. He knows they will weep when he's gone, but he wants them to understand what it's all about, that they will understand the love and obedience of the Father and the Son. Last week, Dr. Bob told us that the believer, this section has been the believer with God. Next is the believer with the believer. How we relate to one another Again, what does it look like to abide in his love? You probably can guess by now. It involves obedience. So I'll wrap up this week with these. 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what his love looks like. It's in love that he hangs this out there for them so that he's saying this, because this is gonna happen in the next few hours. Watch as I perform the stunt of laying down my life for my friends. Watch me. There is no greater love than this. Now watch me prove it. Watch me prove that I lay down my life for my friends. And what kind of friends? Confused, rebellious, scattered, unfaithful betrayers. That's what they're going to turn into in the next few hours. That's the friends he's going to lay down his life for. Aren't you glad? He didn't wait for them to get it right, to understand it, to get it perfect before he laid down his life for his friends. That's not who he is. So we're going to pick up there next week. So I want to, I want to pray. Here's what I want you to be considering as we engage with this. One, God loves you. You may not always feel like the world loves you. It doesn't. You may not always feel very loved by God in this world. That's normal. You're going to feel disappointed by God all the time. I do. He's not letting us down. We're just easily disappointed. We have demands and expectations the way we think it's supposed to. Justin, you can go ahead and come on up. We have demands and expectations how we think it's supposed to be, and it doesn't always play that way. That's all right. Again, we can feel isolated and alone and feel like God doesn't love us. It happens all the time. I get that, and I've been there. It doesn't change that he does. The way he loves us is a way that he understands better than we do how to love us best. So as you wrestle with the fact that God loves you, rest in the truth that it's true, even if we don't feel it, even if we don't always understand it, even if we don't always agree with it. 
we can rest in the fact that I don't have to be on the same page with him. He's already decided to love me. And then for us to ask the next question, which is now, knowing how much he loves me, how do I then follow what he teaches about loving others and loving him? What is that going to look like in my life and in my relationships? So stand, if you will, and let's, let's pray together. And when we're done praying, if you want to respond in some way where you are, if you want to pray, if you just want to thank God, if you want to come up here and thank God for loving you, that's great. If you want to do it there, up here is not worth 500 times the prayers out there or anything like that. But for us, sometimes it's good to go somewhere that focuses our attention. And if that's this, great. That's there, awesome. Um, Pray and and thank God for this in the next few minutes, please. Um, And then, if there's something you know you need to do, there's some way the Spirit is leading you to respond, something to apologize for or to to own up to or whatever, that would be great. I don't don't know what that is. That's between you and Him. Um, Finally, if you've already had conversations with our Welcome Home team and you're ready to join this dysfunctional family, we'd love to have you. Um, and we, we, uh, we'd be proud to. So let me pray. Father, we're so grateful for the work of your son. I pray you would take our focus off of ourself and onto you as the lover of our souls, that we would experience the, your love. And I pray for everybody here that no matter how much hardships they face, no matter what difficulties in their relationships, Lord, that, that you would um, spark the light in their heart and the reminder that you love them. Thank you, Father, for that. We love you too, even though we're terrible at loving. So I pray that you would um, help us to follow through with that the best we can. Teach us, Lord, though, to rest first, to abide in your son's love. Lord, teach us to do that as our starting point in his name. Amen.